Hello, welcome to Four Questions. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Elliot Green, who's an associate professor at the LSE. So, Elliot writes on nationalism and ethnic identity. Nationalism is a pressing concern in Europe and the USA, fueling xenophobia, resistance to migration, hate crimes. But elsewhere, particularly in African studies, we see it as important to inclusive development. Ted Miguel famously showed how strong national rather than ethnic identities led to greater support for public goods in Tanzania as compared to Ted. Kenya. At the macro level, Easterly has argued that ethnic fractionalism impedes growth. And we've also seen the horrors of ethnic violence in Kenya, for instance. So instead of organising horizontally as a class, people may align vertically as an ethnic group. And this shapes politics and incentives for redistribution. So I was really excited by Elliot's paper, which is trying to understand how people come to identify with the nation rather than their ethnicity. And what do you find, Elliot? So one thing to say is that we can think of uh, an ethnic group and nations as sort of like concentric circles. You can think of it almost like Russian dolls, like mm -hmm. the Matryoshka dolls, like the ethnic groups are embedded within the nation, right? Um, in the sense that you have, might even have sub-ethnic groups mm -hmm. or sort of tribal groups within the ethnic group. And the whole point is to ask the question, which do people f find more salient? You know, uh, do they find their ethnic identity more salient or do they find being a member of a nation more salient? So they they might find that they de-emphasize the ethnic identity and emphasize the national identity instead. And the question is why they might do that. Now, historically, you know, there's a very large literature on, on nationalism in Europe, right? The idea, of course, we're sitting here in the UK, here we idea, the idea is that we're, we're British, right? The idea is that people identify with the, the British nation, or perhaps historically maybe the English nation, but you look farther back in time and they might have identified with smaller groups uh, like the, the Cornish nation or, or other, other sub-national identities. France is even more obvious, right? Historically, France was extremely factionalized, perhaps not ethnically, but certainly linguistically. There's a famous book by a man called Eugene Weber called Peasants into Frenchmen, which talked about the fact that in the early 19th century France, um, there was something like um, close to 100 different dialects of French, that really? were, many of which were almost indistinguishable from each other, especially <laughs> ones closer to the Spanish border sounded a lot more like Catalan or Spanish. Other ones in the far north were very, very different from each other. People in, from Paris, they would go out to different parts of France and they felt like they were going to a foreign country. And what I love about that is it reminds us so much of Africa today, right? Mm -hmm. In the sense that France 200 years ago looked a lot like Africa today. But the difference is that, you know, in France we had industrialization, urbanization, mm -hmm. modernization of the state, a stronger state capacity. We had preparing for war, especially World War I. Yeah. We had democratization, a whole bunch of things that came together there um, that sort of modernized the country and made people feel that they were French. And today, of course, we think of the French as having one of the strongest sense of national identities in the world. But historically, it's not really true. I think there's a famous phrase from... Charles de Gaulle, who said, how can you unite a country which has 450 different kinds of cheese, you know? And so, you know, it's interesting that we, we think of a country like France as being so unified today with a strong sense of national identity, but historically it's not true. And even today, you know, you go to various parts of France, like in Provence, people still have a very strong yeah. Provençal identity in places like Toulouse and close mm. to the Spanish border. So the question is, to what degree can that kind of process that existed in France or, you know, Germany, across Europe, uh, North America, East Asia as well, right? You meant Japan and China, Korea. Can that be replicated in Africa, or mm. is it has it been replicated? Mm. You know, asking it to what degree have people re-identified as members of a nation, um, or do they still identify according to their ethnic identity? Mm. And we see interesting um, variation uh, across Africa. Um, and one way to do that is we have surveys that have asked this question. It's actually called a, a Moreno question, based on a Spanish political scientist who studied this in Catalonia and also in Scotland, which are the two classic examples in, in Europe today where people have a subnational identity being Scottish or a national identity being British. And of course in Spain, as we know, it's very, very topical right now with Catalonia and Spain. Um, but you ask this question, do you identify more with the ethnic group 
Do you identify equally with your ethnic group and your nation? Do you identify more with the nation? So there's been surveys done on this. Uh, in Africa, it's done by the Afrobarometer. And we get a lot of interesting variation uh, in terms of uh, looking at the national levels. I mean, some, some of it might be obvious. And Nigeria is possibly the lowest in Africa. And for those who study Nigeria, that's not necessarily very surprising. Then. Nigeria has a very long history of uh, immense amounts of political violent conflict between North and South. A lot of this, of course, is not just about ethnicity, it's also about religion, Muslim versus Christian, but also these very strong inter-ethnic conflicts there that perhaps mean that being Nigerian is not very important to people mm -hmm. in Nigeria. But some of it's interesting. Some of it, um, it does suggest that uh, a lot of these countries have a very strong or stronger sense of national identity tend to be more Francophone countries, mm -hmm. um, which fits to some degree with our understanding of uh, British colonial rule as being very much about divide and conquer. Mm. So the deliberately splitting people up, encouraging more ethnic fractionalization. Uh, it's certainly true, I think, that most of the countries in Africa that tend to be highly fractionalized with very large numbers of ethnic groups tend to be uh, former British colonies. Um, so countries like Madagascar, Niger, Guinea tend to have a very high level of national identification. Nigeria, but also Uganda, Botswana, Zambia tend to have lower levels of national identification. Um, and so that there's a there's a... Perhaps this is a legacy of the colonial era, perhaps it's something to do with the post-colonial period, but I, I do think there's a, some suggestive evidence, at least, that the British left a legacy of, of, of you know, ethnic conflict, but also of stronger levels of ethnic identification. So anyway, to go back to your question, I think a lot of this has to do with the processes by which modernization, in its various forms, might encourage more levels of national identification and to what degree that's taking place today in Africa. And so it's sort of the topic which I've tried to explore in the paper. Yes, yeah, so, so can you talk us through the methodologies? Like, say, so you present this really interesting historical analysis of Uganda. Yeah. So what do you find when you look at it, uh, Uganda? Yeah, so the, the, one of the things that um, I'm really focusing on here is the degree to which we have ethnic, not just ethnic groups, but ethnic cores. The idea that there's an ethnic, uh, a core ethnic group which comprises sort of the core group of the nation, and then there's other ethnic groups. And, th and what matters to me is the degree to which that ethnic core feels like it's in power or not. And the analogy is very simple. I already mentioned um, Europe. So, of course, the core group in Britain is the English, right? So the English historically have been the core of the British nation, and then they sort of gradually conquered and, and uh, assimilated other groups within Britain, especially the Welsh, right, Northern Ireland, and then Scotland. In, in Spain, it's extremely obvious that the Castilians are the core group mm. within Spain who eventually took over the rest of, the, of, of Spain, but of course the peripheral peoples like the Catalans don't necessarily feel that they're assimilated, right? So um, what, I, what I try to look at in this paper is the degree to which, uh, whether an ethnic core, when they're in power, they tend to, people in that core, they tend to identify more with the, the nation because they feel that it's their nation. They feel like they, they control it or they, they are the same as that nation. And of mm. course, again, being in Britain, that's very obvious. It's uh, been obvious ever since I moved here uh, as a foreigner that people really, really hated um, the non-English people in Britain. Really, really hated if you called them English, right? Uh, Scottish people um, hated if you called them Scottish. Uh, if you called them English, right? Because of course the whole point is that Scottish and English are, are distinct identities. In England, of course, people mix up English and British all the time, yeah. right? And that's indicative of the fact that they feel some people feel that being English and being British is the same thing because England is the core group of the British nation. So it's, it's, it's very similar in some sense to the way the Catalans don't necessarily feel Spanish, but people in Castilia, in central Spain, would feel that being Castilian and being Spanish is essentially the mm. same thing. So we have this idea of an ethnic core. Mm. Um, and some people have speculated that, that Africa doesn't have ethnic cores, but I think I was trying to show in this paper that they actually do. So Uganda is a good example of that, right? So in Uganda, um, even the name suggests it, right? The, the central part of Uganda is called Buganda, and the actual name of the country Uganda is a Swahili 
uh, word for Buganda, right? It's just the same same word but in a different language. Um, the British first conquered or first uh, uh, assimilated into, uh, brought it into the British Empire, uh, the Buganda region in central Uganda, and then they conquered various neighboring parts of the country, which then comprised the modern country of Uganda today. Um, and they also used um, people from Buganda to help them conquer the rest of the country. So even from the beginning of the, U of the Ugandan state in the 1880s, 1890s, um, Buganda was in a privileged position, and people from Buganda basically felt that Uganda was their country in some sense. Mm. In the same way that, um, like I said, you might see it in other parts of Europe, but also in Africa, in, in, in Kenya it would be the Kikuyu, right? Um, in um, you know, Cote d'Ivoire, uh, the Akan, Ghana as well, the Akan to some degree, uh, the, the dominant ethnic group, they feel like that the country belongs to them, they are, they are the, the natural rulers of mm. that state to some mm. degree. Um, so what happens, of course, when these people are in power, they feel like that the, again. They're they're very happy to be considered uh, part of the state and uh, part of the nation and also part of the ethnic group. But when they lose power, which happens very often in Africa, because the dominant ethnic group, the core ethnic groups, tend to be quite small. Yeah. Right. The whole issue, of course, in Britain, the reason why we have ongoing issues with Scotland and Northern Ireland is because the so-called four nations of Britain are radically different in their demography. I mean, the English are, are something like 80 percent of the population. Right. It's vastly different from. You know, Scotland, of course, on the map looks relatively similar in size, but it's a much, much smaller population than the English. And so it makes it very difficult to talk about any kind of power sharing or federal arrangements yeah. within Britain. Um, and you know, that can apply to many other countries, too. The difference in Africa, of course, is that instead of being 80% of the population, a lot of these ethnic cores tend to be only 20, 25, 30% yeah. of the population. Mm -hmm. So sometimes they're in power, sometimes they lose power. And that's simply the, the nature of politics. But, of course, when they lose power, they feel like, the, the country's been taken over by other people, they don't feel like they're part of the country anymore, and so my uh, goal in this paper was to show that, that when they lose power they identify less with the nation and more with their own ethnic group. So they sort of retreat into a sense of ethnic uh, nationalism, right? So when they're in power, members of the ethnic core identify with the nation. When they right. are not in power, they identify less with the nation. And so the, the, the example from Uganda I mentioned was that we have this group, the, the Baganda, who live in Buganda, and they historically were very powerful. They had special privileges under colonial rule. When Uganda became independent in the early 1960s, um, they received a federal form of government. They had a federal status, unlike any other part of the country. Other parts of the country had sort of a semi-federal status. Mm. Other parts had no federal status, so they had a privileged position even after independence. Mm. Of course, what happened then is in uh, 1966, uh, mm. there was a coup d'etat. The president was overthrown, and there's a new president, Milton Obote, who came from the north. Um, and ever since then, the Buganda region has never had any more privileged position in, in Uganda. Um, there has been occasional uh, leaders from Buganda, I think for one and a half years in the late 70s, they had a leader, a president from a series of presidents from Buganda. But since 1980, there's been no presidents from, from Buganda, and so they've kind of lost power. And you hear this anecdotally in my, my times I've been to Uganda, in, in, in Buganda people feel very strongly Buganda, but they don't necessarily feel necessarily very strongly Ugandan, mm -hmm. right? So that there's actually been talk in the 60s, after they lost power in 1966, as well as contempor in contemporary Uganda, talk about secession, which of course is ludicrous considering they're right in the middle of the country. I mean, to secede um, would make no sense economically or politically, but people talk about it and, and, and in the sense that they feel they don't feel connected to the rest of the country, mm. right? And I think that's the issue that 
when, when ethnic cores lose power, they really lose that sense of, of, of belonging to the nation. So is your argument that Prato Bote then Bugandans felt more Ugandan? Yes, yes. And how do we know that empirically? Well, part, part of it is that the, all the, the major political parties that came to pass in, in the late 50s as Uganda prepared for independence, they were all led by people from Buganda, right? People from Buganda were definitely um, gung-ho about independence. They fought for independence as much as anybody else. Uh, they led a lot of these political parties. Um, of course, then Obote was one of the major politicians too. And but the the idea was that um, when he came to power, people began to feel less connected to to the to the country, and they right. actually had a. So I, I, I yeah. so your argument is that by Ugandans contributing to independence, it's yeah. like contributing to a public good yeah. for all Ugandans. It's like we're fighting this war together as Ugandans. Oh, yeah, right. yeah. But then that 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 disappears when they they lose power. Right. Right. And and again, you can. You know, this is not as strong an example, but again, to return to Britain, right? There was a period when um, uh, a lot of the labor leaders uh, a decade ago were from Scotland, right? Tony Blair, you know, was born in Scotland. I think he's, you know, his constituency was England, but and Gordon Brown, of course, was Scottish, and so was Alistair Darling. And you would hear sometimes, occasionally, I'd, I'd hear this on the streets or talking to people that you know, there's too many Scottish people running the country, right? Um, not in the sense of you know, violent conflict mm -hmm. between England and Scotland, but this sense that sort of again England has kind of lost power to mm. some degree of course that changed after Cameron came into mm. power in 2010 but it's the sense of you know we we are the ones who are supposed to control the state and we've lost power to these other people we don't feel connected to the state anymore right? so now in, uh, now in Uganda do we find that Bugandans are retreating from national politics yeah there, there's a there's a very very strong sense of ethnic identity they have a traditional king who uh, who's was restored in, in, in symbolically or in name only in the 1990s um, uh, along with other traditional kings. He has no political power whatsoever, but people revere him and they revere the office of, 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 of the Kabaka, that's mm. the traditional name for the king in Buganda, um, and they have very strong feelings that they are separate from the rest of the country. And there have been clashes, there was riots in Kampala which left people dead a few years ago, um, it, largely about the Kabaka and his ability to go around the country and, and speak to various parts of uh, Buganda. Um, and, and there's a feeling that they somehow have lost their power, lost their glory, you know, in the sense that they, there's some, to some degree, a sense of superiority, right? I mean, that is, uh, I think, to some degree true in, in Uganda. It's certainly true in other cases. There was, uh, in the example of Cote d'Ivoire mm. in West Africa, the Akan or the, the group that was really dominant was the Baule uh, within mm. the Akan. Mm. Uh, the president Hufoy Boigny, who was president for something like 33 years um, after independence, um, developed, a, I think, a strong sense of superiority towards other people mm. from Cote d'Ivoire, especially people from the north. Mm. Um, Muslims perhaps might not have uh, had parents or grandparents from Cote d'Ivoire. They might have come across the border from Burkina Faso, other parts of Francophone Africa. And they developed a sense of uh, Ivoirite. Mm. Of course, Ivoirite for them was specifically about the Baule and the Akan, right? Yeah. It was a, sp a very specific idea of who was mm. Ivoirian, mm. and other people were not Ivoirian, and therefore they should be kicked out of the country. Mm. Uh, they were not true members of the nation, and that led very much to the, the civil war that they had in the last 15 years. Yeah. These are fascinating examples, but, but are they just anecdotal? I mean, how can we test whether this is representative? Yeah, how so, can we test this rigorously? So what I did with uh, this data is I looked at uh, a variety of countries, uh, almost two dozen countries within Africa with the Afrobarometer, mm. um, and I looked at uh, to what degree you have an ethnic core uh, in power or you have an ethnic core out of power, and I used uh, statistical analysis to find out whether being a member of that ethnic core was correlated with identification with the nation 
And I found out actually it was positively correlated with identification with the nation when the ethnic core was in power. Right. But negatively correlated with national identification when the when the wow. ethnic group was out of power. Negatively meaning people identified more with the ethnic group. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that meant that there was a shift going on, and that was from just one round. I tested with another round, and then I also tested it on a cross-national level uh, across uh, several, uh, I think, four different rounds. Um, so across all time, it yeah. seems that when their ethnic group yeah. is in power, then they feel, yes, I identify with yeah. the nation. Yeah. So here's a question, because this has got me thinking. I wonder whether there are parallels with gender. I mean, I wonder, might it be the case that women are less nationalistic in countries with male leaders? Or, for example, with class. Are working class yeah. people less nationalistic if their countries are run by the elites? Yeah. If not, I wonder how gender and class are different from ethnicity. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a good question. And, and it's something that... Uh, one thing I should mention is we, I did test uh, for whether uh, gender has an effect on national identification. I found the same thing that another paper had found, which was actually that uh, women do identify more nationally than men. Um, and that's a kind of interesting, robust finding. And that's surprising, right. given that we're saying that, I mean, for most countries, the yeah. president is men. You know, yes. that the people in power yeah. are men, yet yeah. women are identifying more with the nation, yeah. despite yeah. their gender is not representing them, which is the opposite of your argument. Yeah, but I, th I think what's interesting is that, it, and, and again, people have speculated about this before, um, to some degree, this could be an effect of, of ethnic favoritism. To what, in other words, people use their ethnic identity, identity for... Um, they use it for uh, you know sort of instrumentalist reasons. Yeah. So you know, your ethnic identity allows you to access certain public goods because you're a member of an ethnic group. You can get land in this region. You can, yeah, you can own land. Of um, you might get better access to schools or hospitals, or you might get better jobs. You might get hired by the state as a public servant because you're a member of the president's ethnic group. Now that tends to be more men, right? Public servants, I think, tends to be often more men. Um, land ownership is often very gendered. Men might own land, have better access to land than women. And men have better access to patronage networks. Yeah, so it could be that sim simply women don't benefit from, benefit from their ethnic identity mm -hmm. in the same way, mm -hmm. and therefore it matters less to them. That That's speculative, but I think there's something interesting going on yeah, there that, really that, that could... They could work. I mean, there's there's some literature on this, and I have another piece of ongoing work, which is about how when the president's ethnic identity changes, people often change their identity towards the president's ethnic group. In that case, I'm actually looking at uh, women. They redefine. Yeah, it's a small percentage. It's about one and a half percent. But but as a percentage of the president's, uh, the average size of the president's um, um, ethnic group is only about 15 percent in yeah. Africa in these yeah. countries. So basically, one out of every ten people who identifies with the president's ethnic yeah. group um, might actually be a sort of interloper. And that's for women. And I found actually that, that, that it, it, it works very well for women, but not necessarily for men. Um, and that's, that's ongoing work. It's not published yet. But that's something that, that's drawing from DHS data, of course, and DHS data is very much focused on women. That's demographic and health survey data. Okay, here's another counterexample. Yeah. What about the US? Yeah. Because when Obama took power, we saw a resurgence of white nationalism as a backlash to Obama. Doesn't that show that when you're ethnic group is not in power yeah. for these uh, white people, yeah. then they become more nationalistic. Yeah. They're identifying more with the nation, even though someone from the ethnic court is yeah. but not this, in power. I, I mean, I think it, this uh, the US example fits my theory absolutely perfectly. All right. I, think, I think what's going on is that um, we had Obama elected as the first mm. non-white, it's mm. actually mixed race, but people call him African-American president, mm. um, in 2008. And after 2008, you had a huge rise in, in racism in yeah. the US. And yeah. people would... But the wording that people use, the Tea Party, the now Donald Trump supporters, the wording that people use is really interesting because they use exactly the same kind of language that you might have heard 
in Africa or in other parts when an ethnic core loses power, they would often say, this is no longer my country. I don't feel like yeah. this, this, is, this is not the country that I, I, I feel mm -hmm. part of, right? And what did Trump run on? He said, make America great again, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, and many people said that's a coded phrase for let's make America white again, mm -hmm. right? Let's, let's have white people dominate America again. Again, it's just Obama, of course, right? It was not like the whole government <laughs> became black. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? But people perceived right, that because it was correct. a non- non-white person, again, even though he's mixed race, but the, the point is that they, they saw him as a non-white person running this country. We are no longer, we meaning white America, is no yeah. longer in power and we've lost our country. We want our country back, right? And that mm -hmm. was the phrasing that this came out over mm -hmm. the eight years of his presidency, exactly the same sort of phenomenon that I was trying to address in this paper. And now again, the white people are, white people are back in power. Again, we have a white president again, right? And so people feel like, more strongly nationalistic than they did before. Again, not everybody, but a certain segment of white America, I think, definitely had problems right, with Right, I see Obama. now. So it's right. like your argument, because it's saying, if your ethnic core has been in power, then you'll have a strong national identity. And that yes. was certainly the case for the yeah. US, because right. we've had a long succession of white presidents. So that would yeah. strengthen the national identity, yeah. and then you just have the national the national discourse is really yeah. just a backlash towards the loss. Yeah, I mean, it, here's the gender issue, and this mm -hmm. is again speculative. I mean, I, I again, I would imagine when and if the U.S. elects a female president, mm -hmm. you'd get a lot of male backlash, feeling like it's not their country anymore because mm -hmm. you know it's it's male privilege and men should be ruling the U.S. And now we've lost power. I mean. Again, we have a female prime minister in Britain. I'm not sure it's quite the same. But in the but U.S., that, that's a real point. Right. You know, hostile sexism, resentment yeah. of women's gains was one right. of the biggest predictors of support for Trump. True, true. Much bigger than racism or authoritarianism. Yeah. So, yeah, really. Yeah. Okay, all right. So, maybe I accept this argument, this yeah. global argument about ethnic yeah. What are the policy implications? Yeah. I mean, do we say that we need, in, in order to reduce strong ethnic ties, which fuel civil conflict, we need to make sure that diverse groups feel included and yeah. represented at national level. But then I wonder, is there a chicken and egg problem? I mean, how on earth might an African political party ever want to share power with a different ethnicity? Right. I mean, look at Kenya. Right. It's not like you say, right, right. okay, to present to yeah. this, we need more power sharing. Like, yeah. that, that's a really hard one to sell. It is, it is. I mean, again, Kenya is, is yeah, particularly hard not to crack. I mean, oh, one thing that I think does make sense is we start to look at uh, you know, in the last 10 to 20 years, we've seen a lot of democratization in yeah. Africa. In some countries, actually very impressive democratization mm. um, from where they used to be, say, back in the 70s and 80s. And in those countries, uh, those, you know, sort of multi-ethnic countries, I can actually see examples where political parties try to reach out deliberately to other ethnic groups. They might, they, you know, they, in order to win the vote, they, they need to actually reach out, mm. right? They can, they can pick up 30 to 40 percent purely along ethnic lines. I mean, that's always but been they can't important win the majority. in Zambia. Yeah. Zambia's always had this right. sort of one part, you know, multi-ethnic right. power share. Power right, group. because that's how you win party in a multi-ethnic mm. democracy when there's no mm. majority ethnic group. Yeah. Right, okay, in Zimbabwe you have the Shona, so maybe you can just win the Shona vote, which is kind of what happened under Mugabe. Um, but, you know, in countries like Zambia, uh, that doesn't work. The one I'm thinking of, the best example, I think, is Ghana. Right. So Ghana, you know, used to be a, a dictatorship, had yes. many problems with coup d'etats and, and all sorts of problems in the 70s, and then Rawlings started democratizing in the 80s and 90s. And now they have a history of political parties who deliberately reach out. I've, I've forgotten which party it was. Maybe it's both parties, major parties in Ghana. Um, was uh, If they had somebody from the south as the president, their vice presidential candidate would be from the yeah. north, mm. right? So they're deliberately making sure they incorporate people from the north and the south on the same ticket, um, and that's to get support from the whole country, because they know they need to win the vote, and that's what happens in a, in a fully functioning democracy. 
So right. you're hopeful that if we have greater democratisation, yeah. if there are institutional checks and balances so that a ruling party can't collect the votes through intimidation or by monopolising yeah. state media, yeah. democratisation might yeah. fuel a more inclusive political yeah. settlement. Yeah, in that sense that, you know, you, again, Kenya, very flawed democracy. Mm. You know, we had elections that were cancelled earlier yeah. this year, right? So the whole point is... in. Theoretically, hypothetically, in a country like Kenya, if you were to see proper, full-fledged democracy, then you would have to reach out to other ethnic groups, right? You right. couldn't just rely upon, upon the Kalenjin vote or the Kikuyu vote. You'd have to reach out. The same thing is true in Uganda, you know, and, and other parts of Africa. You have to reach out deliberately, and it makes for a much less conflictual sort of politics. Okay, so I'm totally yeah. with you that in sort of stable, middle-income countries, mm. Strengthening democratic processes might reduce the salience of ethnic identities because more people will be included in order to win votes. But what about fragile, conflict-afflicted states which don't have that democratic stability? You know, how uh, uh, and conflict is so often a fuel of their continued yes. fragility. Yeah. I mean, is there anything that can be done to try to reduce that conflict? Yeah. Yeah, then you need to have more Just explicit that, yeah. types of power sharing, mm -hmm. right? I mean, People who study this, um, not myself necessarily, but people who study this, countries look at countries like Lebanon, for mm -hmm. instance, which is not perfect, but there's institutionalized power sharing, which allows some degree of peace between the different communal groups. Yeah. Um, you know, to some degree, South Africa, post-apartheid South Africa. I mean, people predicted when blacks came to power in South Africa, we could have seen a mass, you know, onslaught of ma massacres and violence against whites, right, mm -hmm. and colored people, but we didn't. And part of that was because we saw institutionalized power sharing. I mean, also good leadership in the form of Nelson Mandela, but the point is that it was institutionalized and, and that actually has meant that that sort of racial violence in South Africa has been very, very minimal. And I think that's, that's one way to think about it is that if you don't get full democracy, and again, South Africa is very mm. democratic, but um, if you don't get full democracy, then you at least have some form of, of minority protection and, and group rights, which allow them, allow people to not necessarily be worried that they will be always always in the minority. I suppose one implication would be for Spain. Mm. You know, if Madrid wants to prevent succession, what it really needs to do is yeah. create more power sharing. Yes. You know, so that Catalonians feel yeah. more represented in the national Right, league. and that's, yeah, that, that seems to be what, what may occur mm. there. Obviously, they have some degree of autonomy, but the degree to which, you know, other parts of Spain might get the same autonomy and to what degree they can have power sharing within Madrid. I mean, certainly, in that case, and in many other cases where you see secession, the 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 area that feels disadvantaged has to have some stake in remaining yeah. in the country, yes. right? And arguably, that's perhaps what didn't happen in cases like uh, South Sudan or Eritrea. So they felt they were getting nothing out of being part of that state. They felt nothing. They were not re well represented in in Khartoum or Addis Ababa. They didn't really feel that they were connected to the rest of the country. So there has to be some form of you know, promoting power sharing. Um, being part of the central government uh, in, in some form, um, and uh, eventually democratization, as I said. I think that really is the key, because then people feel like they're, they have the potential of winning a power because they form coalitions with other ethnic yeah. groups, mm. uh, and that leads especially towards more um, you know, sort of peaceful relationships between ethnic groups and, and less conflictual relations. And again, I think Kenya is, is a case study where, again, the, the sort of it, partial democratization but not full democratization has meant that there is ongoing ethnic tensions. Okay, this is amazing. Okay, so the big takeaway
phrase, ethnic core will identify more with the nation mm. when they feel represented in power. And that may happen through the democratic process as people reach out to court new voters. And you've illustrated this through rigorous quantitative analysis and also this encyclopedic knowledge of diverse nations, you know, transcending global north-south silos um, to illustrate a really wonderful argument. Thank you very much. My pleasure.